see that, they, again, that they start well. Let me give you a little bit of preview of, of, I don't know, three or four points, well, actually just three points, of where I hope to go today in our text today. Um, I want us to see the obedience to the word of God. And, and, and let, me, let, let me put this, that, that this obedience is a joyful thing. So let me talk about just not obedience, but joyful obedience. Joyful obedience to the word of God, to the command of God. So I want us to take a look at joyful obedience to the word of God. That's one big topic that I want to, to address. Another big topic that I hope to hit on as we go through our lesson today is how God uses both supernatural and natural means to get his job done. And I'll explain that as, as we get there. So no more on the introduction. You'll understand that more once we get to that point. And then finally, what I, I hope to hit on is how God's invitation to the Gentiles to be welcomed into his covenant community is a big theme in, in our passage today, how God invites people to share in his blessings, not just children of Abraham, but we are going to see that his glory is revealed and manifested in his, in his opening up his blessings to people well beyond Abraham's children. So those are my three big themes. I may add two or three as we go along. You never know. Um, but those three I hope to at least hit on. So if you will, join with me as we look at God's word um, and follow along with me as I read in the book of Numbers, chapter 10, verses 11 through 36. Listen to the inerrant word of God. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. The standard of the camp of Judah set out first by their companies and over their company was Nashon and Aminadab. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Issachar was Nethanel, the son of Zuar. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helen. And when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon, the sons of Merari, the, who carried the tabernacle, set out. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out by their companies. And over their company was Eliezer, the son of Shadur. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Simeon was Shelumiel, the son of Zuri Shaddai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Eliasaph, the sons of Duel. Then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy things. And the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. And the standard of the camp of the people of Ephraim set out by their companies. And over their company was Elishama, the son of Aminahud. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Padatzer. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Benjamin was Abaddon, the son of Gideonai. And this, then the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as the rear guard of all the camps, set out by their companies, and over their company was Ahiezer, the son of Aminashadai. 
And over the company of the tribe of the people of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Ochran. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enon. This was the order of the march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. And Moses said to Hobab, son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting, for, setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good to you. The Lord has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. And he said, please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days journey and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day and whenever they set out from the camp and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. And this is, this ends the reading of God's word. So we begin now with a new section in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, we see three major sections. We see um, Israel at, in the wilderness of Sinai, Israel in the wilderness of Paran, and wilderness in the, or Israel in the wilderness of Moab. And between those three big sections, we see these, these two travel narratives. So we are entering into one of those travel narratives where Israel is traveling. They are traveling from the wilderness of Sinai to the wilderness of Paran, and we're going to get a glimpse at that, that three-day journey into the wilderness of Paran. One of the things I want to note is how they are traveling. How they are traveling, this is a military procession. It is a military march. I'll, I'll pick up on that as we go along. But make no mistake, this is a military march. They are going out with standards and banners in front of them. They are going out in a very designated and precise marching order. This was marching orders that was given back in chapter 2. This is how you will camp, and this is how you will march. And you may be surprised at this, and I know this is going to be really deep, so bear with me. But chapter 2 comes after chapter 1. Let me let that sink in for a moment. See, and in chapter 1, you'll recall that there was a census. There was a census of everybody who was able to go to war. Chapter 1, they counted who is able to go to war, and in chapter 2, they assigned them their camps and said, this is your marching orders. I, I bring all that up because this is a military march. They are going to march into the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land in a very distinct and precise manner. They are going to go out, and God is going to lead the way. They are going to set out by tribe with the holy things in the midst of their camp. This is a little bit confusing as you read the text because sometimes you might wonder, it looks like the, the holy things are in the middle of the camp and then it says the Ark of the Covenant is out in front of the camp and the solution is very simple. The Ark of the Covenant 
is out in front of the camp leading the way and the rest of the holy things are carried by the Kohathites in the midst of the camp. So it's actually a very simple thing. But God is represented in their front and he is in their midst as they travel through the wilderness. I guess that's the big point. Is God is in their midst and God is leading them. So a couple quick little applications. Well, I don't know if they'll be quick. But a couple of applications. And that is we should be aware that God has instructed his people how to march and they did so. This is how you will march. You will be, you will camp in this particular formation, and when it comes time to set out, this is what you are going to do. The Lord commanded Moses to tell the people, and the people did as the Lord commanded. So like I said, pretty good start. They're doing exactly as God had informed them. So God instructs them how to march. They do so. His presence is not only their guide, but their confidence. As long as God is in front and leading the way and in our midst, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. One of the things that struck me about this obedience to march as God commands is that I note the precision and I note that at least at this point, nobody is questioning the order of marching. There isn't like, listen, this is so precise and so detailed. Do we really need to go through all of this difficulty? Do we need to have all... Can't we just love God and just kind of wander through the wilderness in, the, in whatever order we want? Can't we just love God? I think it's sad, but it's maybe part of our nature that we tend to separate or create a dichotomy between obedience and love for God. They obeyed God, but I... Holding to the fact that their obedience flows from their love for God. In other words, obedience and love are not mutually exclusive. Perhaps maybe a great New Testament example of this is Jesus, who says this in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then look at verse 21, or I'll at least read you verse 21. It's reiterated. Jesus again, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In verse 21, the one who loves me keeps my commandments, and I dwell within him. So I just gave you verses 15 and 21. It's interesting what is detailed between those two verses. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. And then comes the promise of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you love me, you'll keep my commandment. And I don't know about you, but I say, Lord, I don't know how to love, I don't know how to keep your commandments. And Jesus says, how about this? 
I put myself, I indwell you with my Holy Spirit and enable you to keep my commandments. And I'm thinking, well, that's pretty good. But wait, there's more. Not only will you, by my Spirit, enable you to do the very thing I've called you to do, but keeping my commandments will actually be a joyful thing. I think we have this weird, this weird idea that following the Lord is some unpleasant miserable existence, like, oh, well, at least I get heaven when I'm done. I'll be a Christian, okay, I'll follow Jesus, and I'll obey, and whatever. Or, I don't really need to do it, I just can just love Jesus. And I don't need to keep any of his commandments. Both those ditches are dangerous to drive into. The bottom line is, is, Following God's commandments is the most joyful, satisfying place that you can be. In fact, our greatest joy will be found in keeping his word. This is why John also says in, in, his, uh, in his epistle, he says, and his laws, God's laws are not burdensome. Notice I didn't say they were, John didn't say they were easy. I'm saying they aren't burdensome. It is a joy to obey God's word. Why? God has placed His Spirit in us so that we have a new heart and we understand that it is a joy, it is a pleasure, it is a great privilege to keep God's Word. God says do this and it's not burdensome. In fact, my greatest source of satisfaction will come from obeying God's Word. So with that, I'm going to make a brief confession to you and it's... um, a little embarrassing, as a matter of fact. It's humbling. I was talking with Steve earlier to this week, and I already shared this with Steve, so he already knows my frailties. So I was selling one of my bikes, and I had, I think it was Monday, maybe, yeah, it's probably Monday. Somebody reached out to me and wanted to buy the bike, and he's asking some questions about it, and and one of the questions was this, when was the last time you had the suspension serviced? And so I replied about a year ago, and that wasn't true. It was really about a year and a half ago, and I know within the realm of buying and selling, you can kind of fluff things up a little bit, and really, what's a year, year and a half? I mean, really. And I told him a year and a half. I told him a year, when it was really a year and a half. So I'm sitting there waiting for him to respond, and man, the Holy Spirit is just not letting me get away with that. I'm like going, oh, man. It wasn't a burden, but I messaged him back and I said I got to be honest with the guy I mean I wasn't entirely accurate and here's the th- and I told him I, I messaged him back I said really it's been a year and a half and that, that was it I never heard back from him after that but, but here's the thing that wasn't burdensome it was a joy to be able to, to follow what God had said his command is to be honest It's like, oh, darn, I'm going to have to be honest with this guy. Because here is the issue. The issue is I don't trust God. 
to produce a sale of something I have up for sale. I don't trust God to actually be able to to meet my needs. Are you kidding me? Am I so small? Is God so small? And I'm like going, listen, God knows this isn't even really a need. It's just something. I do not need to fluff something up or puff something up as though God is unable to meet my desires. God can meet those desires. And what if he didn't? What, am I going to starve tomorrow? Am I going to be homeless? Is Simone going to leave me? No. Everything's going to be fine. I made God tiny. What a horrific, that bothered me. I made God this big. God is much bigger than anything. So I wrote the guy back and I told him the truth. And I would love to tell you right now that the guy was so impressed with my honesty that he repented of his sins, asked me to, to, uh, to lead him in a, to a place of salvation and wanted to buy my bike for full asking price plus some because I was so honest. Didn't happen. Never heard back from him. Joyful obedience. It was not a joyful thing to be disobedience. It was a great joy to do what God said. I praise God for the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and enables us to love God by keeping his commandments. That was the Holy Spirit who enabled me to do that. Because in my own mind, I'm thinking, eh, you know, we can puff things up, make things look a little bit better than they ought to do. I mean, everybody does it, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here, the people of Israel are following God's commandments precisely. And he is in their midst. And he is leading them. And I pray that as we joyfully commit to follow the commands of the Lord, we will find our greatest satisfaction, our greatest fulfillment, our greatest joy in doing what what God has said. Because we have been made for him. He knows how we operate. He knows what works. And what works is following his laws and keeping his commandments and doing so joyfully. But you can only do that if, the Holy, if, if you are born again and the Spirit of God is indwelling you. Otherwise, his laws are burdensome. So, they are following precisely what God had said and God is in their midst and God is leading them. And then that gets me even to a much more fundamental question. The next fundamental question is really this. Why the wilderness and even why fight? That's my question. Why the wilderness? This camp is arranged for battle. It is arranged by stage and by standard. And God is leading. God is present. In fact, this is what distinguishes their military from every other military that they are going to encounter. But God is, is in their midst and My question then is, why the wilderness? Why aren't they just transported from Sinai into the promised land? Would it be too much 
for God just to transport two million people from one place to the next? And my answer would be no. So why the wilderness? Why battle? Why fight? Why are you arranged for military? Why are you going to encounter enemies? It is in the wilderness that they will experience God's faithfulness. It is in the wilderness that they will see God's protection, his judgment, his grace, and his provision. In the wilderness, they will experience God firsthand, not just in the safety of the camp. Folks, it is one thing to be in the safety of Sinai and get used to God kind of being up on the mountain and Moses bringing us his word and we're camped out. We got water. We got food. Everything's getting taken care of. Life seems to be pretty good. But now God is saying, now it's time to move. And you need to trust me in this unknown wilderness. Will you follow after me? And it is here that they will experience God firsthand. It is here that they will experience God, not in theory, but in action. And this will be a comfort for them and a testimony to others. They will see God's provision and others who are not part of Israel will see God's power and majesty and glory. Every day, folks, every day, we are to express his presence. Folks, we live in light of the gospel. We live experiencing his faithfulness. And when we live in light of his faithfulness and forgiveness, we are testifying to a broken world the reality of his truths. So let me ask you this. How does the gospel affect us each and every day? How does the gospel affect how we live our lives, how we raise our kids, how we um, act as an employer or an employee, as, as a church member? How does the gospel affect your life? Not here. It's easy to be a Christian here. We can smile and say, oh, praise the Lord, and sing the songs. And you walk out the door. How is the gospel going to impact your life? When you go into the wilderness... How will that, how will the fact that Christ died for your sins, was buried and raised again to new life and is coming again, how will that reality impact how you live in your, na- in your neighborhood? How you spend your money, how you spend your time. The Israelites learned or understood that life in the wilderness was one of warfare and they would only find victory by God's strength. In fact, look how Moses began and concluded each of their journeys. So when they set out, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And then when it rested, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. As they set out, Lord... Let your enemies be scattered. Part the way for us. Make a way. And when it's time to camp, Lord, rest with your people. As they begin, he invokes the God who will fight for them. And when they come to a camp, he prays that the Lord would rest and be in their midst. And then you'll note this, that whenever the ark set out, this was repeated over and over and over again. Every time they set out, the Moses repeated this statement. 
lest they forget. So the first kind of big issue is this idea of joyful obedience, living in, living in the wilderness, living amongst um, a hostile environment. Remember we talked last week, we talked about how the Bible sometimes calls the wilderness the howling wilderness. This was a barren, treacherous place. God has been training them. This is how you are going to live in a hostile environment. You will live with me in front, with me in the middle. You will live um, in joy by following my commands. That will not only give you um, uh, the greatest joy, but I will take you through everything you need and I will take you into the land of promise. So that's our first big thing. But then we get over here to verse 29, and we see, And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Rahul, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out for the place of the Lord, which the Lord said, I will give you. And Moses invites Hobab to come. Why don't you come with us? And Hobab initially says, No, no, I'm not going to come. I'm going to go back to my family. And then Moses says this very strange thing. I don't know if you picked this up. Please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. That's an odd statement. I thought God was going before them. I thought God was making the way for them. So now Moses is saying, Hobab, why don't you come and be eyes for us? You know where to camp. As a Midianite, you know the wilderness. You've lived out here. You go with us and you'll show us where to camp. Strange offer. Seems like God's the one supposed to be leading the camp. Why is this offer to this Midianite to be eyes for us? Well, I think there's a very important um, truth here and perhaps we also um, fail or we fall into this false dichotomy between... um, Divine guidance and natural ability. Let me give you a good scripture. I, I think a scripture that, that, that explains this well. Psalm 127.1. All right. Let me turn there. Psalm 127.1 says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Well, that's an interesting te- passage of text. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to who build it. Who's building the house? Is it God or the laborers? Who's watching over the city? Is it the watchman or God? And I pre- presented you with a false dilemma. It's both. God builds the house, and so do and people come along and labor. Hobab's assistance is one means that God will utilize for bringing about his divine purpose. God uses both supernatural and, say, natural means to bring about his purposes. And I don't think that there needs to be a sharp dichotomy or a sharp division between those two things. I'll give you some, a couple of New Testament examples. 1 Corinthians 2, one of my favorite passages of text, talks about how the Holy Spirit illumines the scriptures for us. 
And um, let me get there here real quick. It talks about how the Holy Spirit illumines the scriptures so that the believer can understand what the word of God says. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you won't even understand. The the, the things of the Spirit are foolishness to the natural man. He cannot understand the things of the Spirit. But God has given us His Spirit so that we can understand what He, the very mind of God. So the Holy Spirit illumines the Scriptures so that we can understand them. Probably, I hope most of you are saying, amen, awesome. But then we get some other really strange, conflicting passages like in Ephesians. That the Holy Spirit then gifts teachers for his people. Wait a second. I thought the Holy Spirit illumines the scriptures so we can all understand the scriptures, and yet he gives us teachers to teach us? I don't get it. Which one is it? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who try it all. It is the Lord who illumines the scripture. Every single person here who is filled with the spirit, who has the spirit of God, that is, you are born again. If you are born again, the spirit of God indwells you and you can understand God's word. And yet God imparts to his people certain individuals who are able to teach and bring an extra, who are able to um, explain God's word in a gifted way. The Holy Spirit teaches all believers. And so we have this both divine and very natural means of God guiding us. Another another example is this. Um, At this church, we have uh, uh, more of a, a reformed idea of how salvation, of how God works in salvation. And basically what that means is that we believe that God is not only sovereign in everything, but he is also sovereign in salvation. That's right. God is sovereign in our salvation. Which usually prompts the question, well, if God is sovereign in in salvation and he has elected those for salvation, then why do we even need to witness? If God already knows... Why do we even need to witness and share the gospel? And I guess I could be snarky and say, because God said so. And that would be accurate, snarky, but accurate. But God just doesn't do stuff for no purpose. You see, God has also provided human means. That is the foolishness of preaching by which the elect will be convicted by the word of God and be saved. So God is doing both supernatural, is doing supernatural things through very natural means. God uses means, very natural means. Foolish men and women proclaiming the truth of the gospel brings about a supernatural work that that changes the hardened heart of a corrupt and fallen individual to to the place where they are able to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That's an amazing thing. God, the supernatural God, brings about a supernatural work through a very natural means, that is the foolishness 
of preaching. And so we see that both natural and supernatural work. God has gifted his people to participate in his work. What a joy that is. The next thing we see from Hobab is is this next offer that Moses gives to Hobab. He basically says, listen, come with us. Come with us, Hobab. You're a Midianite, but come with us. And all of the good, all of the blessings that the Lord delivers to us, we will deliver to you. We will share in the blessings of God. Moses invites Hobab to rest beyond the wilderness and participate in the blessings that flow from uniting with the people of God. He says, we receive good and we will pass that good on to you. In other words, we we will receive a blessing and you, by participating in this community, will receive the blessing as well. In other words, they were Israel understood, Moses understood that they were blessed to be a blessing. This follows very closely to the promise of Abraham. Remember, I will bless you and I will bless those who bless you. Moses or Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. Israel now is blessed to be a blessing. And if you've experienced the blessing and grace of God, you have done so that blessing should flow over to others. Too often times we think, Jesus died for me. Well, he did. But one of the most profound statements, one that has just altered the way that that I see things, came from really a devotional book by um, Galatee. What's his first name? Robert? What is it? Robbie Galatee. And he begins his book with this line. It wrecked me. The gospel came to you because it was headed somewhere else. The gospel came to you because it was going somewhere else. We tend to think that Jesus died for me and I am the terminus of his grace. I am the receptacle and the the receiver of all of his blessings and it just stores up in me. I am the terminus, the reservoir of his blessing. No, you are the conduit of his blessing. The gospel comes to you because it's going somewhere else. Moses understands this. We have received the blessings of God, but we are not the terminus of the blessings of God. It is now to pour forth to you, Hobab and the Midianites, and I will also say to the rest of the Gentile world. The gospel came to you because it's going somewhere else. If we think that the blessings of God are all about us, but it's God who's the center of the gospel. When he blesses you, it is for that blessing to flow to somebody else. If you've received the forgiveness of God by his grace and mercy, that grace and mercy then should be flowing through you to another. 
We think, well, Jesus comes into my life and he came into my life to make my life better and easier. He's going to make my life and my situation better. He's going to fix my troubled marriage and all of my kids who are addicted are going to become sober and all of my dysfunction is going to become functional and my husband and my wife is going to love me more and more. My boss is going to stop being a jerk and all of this is going to, and my employees are going to show up on time every day and work really, really hard. That's what's going to happen. And here's the thing, people get frustrated because oftentimes that just doesn't happen. And you're going, I thought God's blessing was upon me. We get frustrated when Jesus doesn't fix our marriage, our job, our health, etc. Why do we get frustrated? Well, I'll give you a very simple answer, perhaps a snarky one. You aren't the center of the gospel. You are not the center of the gospel. God is the center of the gospel. And he will take you through those difficulties and he will show you his faithfulness so that you can bless others. See, the blessings that you receive, the stability that you receive when your world is crumbling apart or when everything is going great and wonderful and you're experiencing just nothing but mountaintop after mountaintop regardless of the circumstance. That blessing then should flow to another. You've received God's grace. Be the conduit of God's grace. And then finally, we see this invitation to an outsider. Hobab's a Midianite. Let me be clear. Hobab is not a Jew. He is not part of the covenant promise. He is not a child of Abraham. And the desire of Moses is that this Gentile would be included in the family of faith. In other words, you, Hobab, who are on the outside, I'm inviting you to become a child of the promise. I'm inviting you to become part of the covenant community. Folks, the promises, let me just point this out real quick. The promises of God have always been for all people. The problem arises when we think the promises of God are just for me or people like me. But the promises of God are available to every tribe and tongue and nation and people. So the inclusion of this Midianite is going to do a couple of things. First of all, his family is going to become a recipient of the covenant blessings of God. But also, by including this Midianite, the The glory of God spreads around the Gentile world. The inclusion of the Midianites will display the splendor of God in a way way more expansive than might have ever been realized. In other words, the the powerful God, the God who brought this group of people out out of Egypt and out of slavery and has brought them through the howling wilderness, the desolate wilderness, and has cleared the way for, um, for his people, this God will receive me as well. We not only see his miracles, he parted the Red Sea. When we see Rahab, what does she do? We know all about you. When the spies come in, 
uh, to, to Jericho, Rahab is like, we know all about you. We've heard about you. We know that you defeated Sihon and Og, armies, great kings. We know what you've done. We know who you are. This is why Moab wouldn't let Israel come through its territories. Are you kidding me? Two million people? We're not letting you through our territory. You're going to take us over. We know who you are. We know who your God is. We know he's all-powerful. And it is this God who is saying, you can be part of my community as well. He gave that to Rahab. Canaanites became, were able to be part of the covenant community. He gave the promise to Moabites, to Ruth. He has blessed Israel to be a blessing to the nations. If you are here today and you have never called upon the name of the Lord, if you do not know the salvation of this God, I want you to know it is not an exclusive plan. It is not just for people who got their acts together. First of all, I can look, I know all of us, all right? And none of us got our acts together. Pretty much I can say that with confidence. We've been around each other for a while. And you know me, I don't have my act together. I just confessed to you about some horrific thing that I did just this week. You think I got my act together? I'm telling you, That his grace is sufficient. That where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So pile up your sin. Pile them at the feet of the cross. His mercy is more. Pile them as high as you can pile them. Let them ascend to heaven. And there, at the top of the heap of sins, is a crucified Christ. Folks, you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. He can be a blessing to others. Let me make just a few gospel connections here and we'll call it a day or a morning or church service. Israel begins well. I've said that from the beginning. We'll see next week. They falter real quick. They get three days in and they, three days, three days, and they're done. Unable, just like many of our New Year's promises. Three days, that's it. They are unable to be steadfast. Who is able to be faithful? Israel begins well and falters. And here's the thing, not even Moses gets into the promised land. Moses falters. That's right, the great Moses fails in the wilderness. He doesn't enter the promised land because of his sin. Folks, Israel and Moses are not our model. In fact, they should create a longing for us, for one who is faithful. Sometimes people might say, oh, man, I wish I was like Israel, that the cloud was in front of me and the pillar of fire and all of these miracles. Folks, they had it and they couldn't follow God. With all of that, they still failed. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the beginning and the end of our faith. 
F.F. Bruce, I think, rightly notes that author also has this idea of one who goes before a pioneer, a trailblazer. He blazes the path. He, in Matthew, he went into the wilderness and he was successful. He defeated Satan in the wilderness. Jesus knows the way through the wilderness. And he has blazed a trail and he invites you to join him in this journey. He accomplished the life of faith. He began well and he finished well. And he did it for the joy set before him. The joy set before him was the prospect of your salvation. He endured the cross and the suffering for the joy set before him. See, God doesn't merely save and then instruct us how to get to the promised land. He just doesn't say, okay, well, now you're saved and hopefully you get to heaven and I'm cheering for you all the way, man. I'm on your side. God needed to do everything. He saves us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. He guides us. And on the day you step over the threshold of heaven, when you die and you step into the presence of God, it will be because he accomplished that as well. He saves you. He takes you through this wilderness and he will take you across the threshold of his glorious kingdom on that day. It is all by him. He has blazed the trail. Christ has already defeated the enemy. He has made a path through the wilderness and he has entered into heaven. He knows the way. He's been through your suffering. He's been through your trial. He's been through your betrayal and he has done so without sin. He says, I know how to get through this. Stick with me. I know how to go through your victory without becoming conceited and prideful. I know how to experience your joy without being being dependent upon that. I know how to get you through this life and get you into the next one because I've done it. So will he go before you? Will he be with you? He is the author and perfecter, the beginning of our salvation and the finisher of our salvation. And oh, by the way, he's there every step in between. If you think you can get there on your own, you are sadly mistaken. Jesus accomplishes our salvation. He applies that salvation by his spirit. He is with us. He's gone before us. He knows the way. He fights for us. He sustains us. And when our journey is done... Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. This is the gospel. And I hope that you would be cut to the quick to receive all that God has done. If you are a believer today, cling to that this week. I don't know what's going to happen afterwards. I don't know what you're going through. Share with me. Burden me with your burdens. I'll be happy to bear with you in those. This I know. Christ has been there. And he knows the way. So if you will, if you've not ever called upon the name of the Lord, please come. I want to introduce you to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you and we praise you and thank you. We thank you for the grace that you have. We thank you for the gospel that you've given us. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Who are we that you would love us? And yet here we are. 
So have mercy upon us this day, Lord God. Strengthen us this week. Lord, I pray that when we go out from this camp, here in this church service, Lord God, we can enter into a howling wilderness with confidence, knowing that you've already been through it, that you will take us even through the midst of our enemies, and even if they slay us, you are faithful to us even in death. Not even death will separate us from the love of God in Christ. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for all that you've given to us. Be merciful to us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.